0: Welcome to our creepy Christmas extravaganza. Have you been good boils and ghouls? If not, look out for the Christmas baddies. They're going to get you, for goodness sake. and screaming spookies welcome to history goes bumps creepy christmas extravaganza (laughs) kelly you and i have never sat down and talked about all the christmas baddies out there and i thought this would be a great opportunity to do that for everybody this christmas of 2022 looking
1: forward to share with everyone (laughs) For many, Halloween is the creepiest holiday on the calendar. Some people might be surprised to hear us claim that the Christmas season gives Halloween a run for its money. When one looks at the various cultures around the world and their stories and customs around the Christmas holiday season, there can be no doubt that fear was a major component of the holiday season that coincides with winter solstice. After all, this time of the year is the darkest. Everything is dying. It's no wonder that humans came up with some pretty creepy lore. On this creepy Christmas extravaganza, we are going to
0: look at these legends. Much of the lore around Christmas, regardless of culture, was meant to keep children on the straight and narrow. That seems to say something about adults. There are many Christmas baddies out there that seem to have been created to build fear in kids. Santa Claus leaving coal in a stocking for bad children is very tame as compared to these stories. Let's start with The King of Winter. Jack Frost is not someone you'll find spelled out in ancient stories and mythology. He seems to be found under some other names like Old Man Winter and such. Basically, he is the personification of Winter. The blog writing in the margins trace this figure to possibly some Norse mythology, surrounding a deity with the name Jakul Frosty, which translates to Icicle Frost. This looks like a real possibility, but further research reveals that Jokul and Frosty are two separate names used to refer to one person. This is the son of the Norse wind god, Kerry, so they couldn't be a name that morphed into Jack Frost eventually. It's kind of like having a name for your child that is their given name and then you have a nickname for them. But there are other countries that have a possible origin of this character too. We don't have to just look to the Norse to see where this might have come from. In Finnish folklore, the control of the winter weather is attributed to Frostman and Frostwoman. And they are the ones credited with keeping nice living conditions for the reindeer. Japanese folklore also has a story about a Frostman and his brother, Mistman, who are the keepers of Frost and Dew.
1: Trying to describe what Jack Frost looks like runs the gamut as well. For people my age, I'm sure you all flashed to the 1979 stop-motion animated television special, Jack Frost. He looks just like a regular guy, except he is the color blue. In this story, he's not a bad guy at all. He saves a girl, they fall in love, he asks to be human, and eventually ends up back as Jack Frost after quite an adventure. But other descriptions of Jack Frost are quite different. Some images depict him as an old man with full beard and resembling a Father Christmas character, only dressed in all white. Other descriptions have Jack looking like a sprightly character. In some stories, he is a hero like in the Rankin-Bass stop-motion special and the movie Jack Frost starring Michael Keaton. But in others, he's a villain like in the 1997 horror movie Jack Frost. In that movie, he's a serial killer.
0: In the Santa Claus 3, he's a man who wants to overthrow Santa. I think we can all surmise where the name Jack Frost comes from by looking at our Halloween traditions. We all know that jack lanterns get their names from some folklore about a character named Jack. And we know from that that the name Jack is basically just a generic name for a male, similar to John Doe or John Smith. And since the Jack we're looking at is the personification of winter, it makes sense that he would be given the last name Frost. The first time he is seen as an illustration is in a political cartoon that was published in Harper's Weekly in 1861. The cartoon depicts General Jack Frost freezing out the malaria that was spreading across the American Civil War. It was drawn by Thomas Nast. This is the same man who was made famous for creating the image of Santa Claus that we're all familiar with today. The cartoon has the caption, our new Major General, and refers to a speech made by Major General Benjamin F. Butler, who stated, our faithful old ally of the North, General Jack Frost, shall come and clear away the malaria of the south, and we shall march southward from this place, and there shall be no footsteps backward until this rebellion is crushed out of this union. At this time in the Civil War, there had been these huge outbreaks of cholera, and it was hoped that this coming freezing winter weather would kill off the infections that were hindering the war effort. Nast would later go on to depict Jack Frost again in 1864 in an illustration called Central Park Winter. Jack Frost appears in that as a very genial fellow and he's presiding over all of the wintry fun that's going on in Central Park. And here is where he looks very similar to Father Christmas. But the first mention of Jack Frost came before this in 1734 in a roundabout our coal fire or Christmas entertainments with some curious memories of old Father Christmas. This is a pamphlet that's described as shooing what hospitality was in former times and how little there remains of it at present. I love that. <laughs> Guess there wasn't a lot of hospitality in 1734. This pamphlet includes one of the earliest known versions of the story, now known as Jack and the Beanstalk. So here again we see the name Jack being used to refer to all men. Here is a quote from that pamphlet. This time of year, being cold and frosty, generally speaking, or when Jack Frost commonly takes us by the nose, the diversions are within doors, either in exercise or by the fireside. So basically we have a fancy way of saying Jack Frost, nipping at your nose. Fast forward to December 7th, 1765, and we have Jack Frost to the author of The Summer's Tale, St. James Chronicle. This is a silly letter to an editor that had the anonymous pen name Jack Frost. But clearly, somebody is familiar with that name and using it. In January of 1785, the Freeman's Journal, or the North American Intelligencer, which came out of Philadelphia, published a poem, The Life and Adventures of Jack Frost and His Wholesome Advice to All Honest Hearts at This Nipping Season. The sporting magazine in 1826 had a mention of Jack Frost. It said, Jack Frost, however, put a veto on our morning sport. And when you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, they will date the name Jack Frost to this article, even though it made other appearances. They're going to be credited with coming up with that, I guess. In 1858, there was a book called Jack Frost and Betty Snow and Other Tales for Wintry Nights and Rainy Days written by John F. Cantor. In this book, Jack Frost has a wife, her name is Betty Snow, and they are these spirits who go around freezing everything and killing people. Now we're starting to see just how dark Jack Frost can be. In 1872, there is a book called Hardwick Tradition, Superstitions, and Folklore, and in it it has a line that says, The Blustering of Old Boreas and the Frigid Embrace of Jack Frost. In 1875, there's this great little poem by Charles Sangster entitled Little Jack Frost. This one is a jovial, nice kind of character, although he has some nose-biting and prank playing, and he's also said to caper wildly through storms and sleet. He eventually is ousted by Mother Nature in this poem. A poet by the name of Bates wrote Goody Santa Claus in 1889, and in it, Jack Frost is the neighbor of the clauses. This was the first time that Jack Frost was kind of thrown in with Santa Claus and with Christmas festivities. So we're going to start seeing him being linked to Christmas a lot more. Even though we know winter goes on for a long time after Christmas, this poem is going to link him with it. L. Frank Baum wrote The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus and in it Jack Frost is featured. This was in 1902. Alice Brooks wrote Jack Frost Christmas Stories in 1905 and he's also a character in a skit titled An Autumn Carnival that will be written four years later. Uh, Biworks, who obviously I love because I'm into Disney, created a cartoon short that was called Jack Frost in 1934. In this, Jack appears as a weird but friendly little gnome who has a paintbrush and a palette. And even though he's kind of weird, he's not actually the villain in this cartoon. Old Man Winter is, which is differentiating between the two, although I've seen them both referred to by the same name. He's blue-colored and he has icicles for a beard. Collier's is a magazine and on its cover in 1936 was Jack Frost, a picture of a small man surrounded by painting implements and colorful fall leaves done by Maxfield Parrish. And then, of course, in 1945, we have the Christmas song, which comes out with the lines, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose. And so now we really have Jack Frost and Christmas sealed together. Hannah F. Gould wrote a poem in the 19th century, Freaks of Frost, later titled Jack Frost. The
1: frost looked forth one still clear night and whispered, Now I shall be out of sight. So through the valley and over the height, in silence I'll take my way. I will not go on with that blustering train, the wind and the snow, the hail and the rain, who make so much bustle and noise in vain. I'll be as busy as they. Then he flew to the mountain and powdered its crest. He lit on the trees and their boughs he dressed. In diamond beads and over the breast of the quivering lake he spread. A coat of mail that it need not fear, the downward point of many a spear that hung on its margin far and near, where a rock could rear its head. He went to the windows of those who slept, and over each pane like a fairy he crept. Wherever he breathed, wherever he slept, by the light of the moon were seen. Most beautiful things, there were flowers and trees. There were bevies of birds and swarms of bees. There were cities with temples and towers, and these all pictured in silver sheen. But he did one thing that was hardly fair he peeped in the cupboard and finding it there that all had forgotten for him to prepare now just set them a thinking i'll bite this basket of fruit said he this costly pitcher i'll burst in thee and the glass of water they've left for me shall pitch to them i'm drinking
0: Kelly, what would the holiday season be without a Christmas Sasquatch? Oh,
1: this I'm not familiar with. I'm looking forward to it.
0: This is called Caraconkulus. I hope I said that right. He waits around until his victim arrives and then he pounces with a riddle. Oh, my. (laughs) I mean, when I said pounce, you thought, oh, he's going to start ripping somebody open, right? Pretty much. This thing has big gaping teeth, so that's exactly what you would think, that he's getting ready to eat some poor, naughty kid. When we use the term victim, we really do mean victim. If you screw up answering this riddle, you get the death blow from this fiend. How do you keep from screwing up the answer? Just make sure you incorporate the word black in your answer somehow. Apparently, this is some kind of magical word. What's black and white and red all over? A newspaper. (laughs) Just make sure to say something like, uh, run over zebra in the road with black stripes. We know the answer is newspaper, as you said there, Kelly. (laughs) But go with it, okay? All right,
1: all right. Now you probably think you're clever and have the perfect solution. Just avoid street corners. Not so fast, smarty pants. The caracanculus can visit houses too, and he likes to do so at night. He pretends to be one of your relatives calling out in distress. Yoo-hoo!
0: That was a great impression, Kali. I love it.
1: I'm thinking of some Aunt Edna or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Waving your little handkerchief.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yoo-hoo. I'm out here on the landing with a broken leg, my little brother. <laughs> what, sorry. you want me to come running over and I help can't... set it? <laughs> Bite this stick
0: while I do it. <laughs> Open
1: your mouth. Bite down hard. Sometimes he dresses up like a little girl. This is another level of terrifying. And then, when the hapless victim comes out of the house, bam! He puts them into a trance that causes them to freeze like a night terror sleep paralysis thing. And then that person freezes to death in the cold. The Karakonkalis also likes to jump on backs and demand rides. <laughs> <laughs> this is very entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> He's heavy. <laughs> so it's. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He's heavy. So it's grueling, and the rooster's crow in the morning is welcome relief. After the holiday season, the Christmas Sasquatch has to retreat back to the shadows.
0: Look, if you think that this (laughs) grueling, toothy, nasty thing is a little girl just because it threw on a dress, you kind (laughs) of get whatever you get.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's the visual I had in my head. (laughs)
0: Ancient Indo-Germanic beliefs held that the months of winter are dominated by demons and evil spirits, maybe because there was so much death, because food was scarce and hard to come by. And if you think about it, the noises of winter can be terrifying. The wind howls, the trees whip around, leaves die, animals, lots of them wild and dangerous may come closer to humans searching for food. The winter brings darkness, cold, and danger, so it's easy to understand how people would develop beliefs about darker creatures during this time. Fra Perchta and Fra Holda are sometimes seen as one and the same, but they actually are two very separate goddesses. They just share many things in common. They both are goddesses of the wild hunt, and when they are on the hunt, if you're a human, you don't want to be anywhere in their pathway, or they will kill you. Perchta is usually seen as a dual male female deity and is accompanied by all sorts of evil spirits in the winter. She seems to have a power of them and can keep them under control. In honor of Perchta, these areas even today celebrate something called Perchten. The time of the year where Percha has her largest role is at the end of December and beginning of January. This is when her feasts and traditions are held. She's been associated a lot with the time of Epiphany. And that starts on the night of January 5th and goes to January 6th. And there was a time when they believed that this holiday was actually called Perchtes Day or Perchtentag. She has a train of unbaptized children that follow her around. And she's associated with children a lot, although she's never had any children of her own. This might have been a story that the Christian church used to convince people to baptize their children so that they wouldn't end up following Perksta and going off. And traditionally what it is, is young men would dress up as these hideous monsters and parade through the village. Kinda sounds like the whole Krampus parade thing going. These young men who would dress up as these beasts would put on these wooden painted masks that would resemble devils. They would have horns and tusks and teeth, but they would be missing ears so that they could not hear the screams of their victims. They would wear these big furs and have large bells around their hips. They'd carry around dried horse or cow tails that they could use as whips. Sounds very similar to the Krampus parades that we see around the world. And there is a description of this in a book written by a man named Hoffler. It says the Perchtenlauf was earlier usual on the last Frotchen evening. It was a kind of masked procession. The masked ones were called Perchten. They were divided into beautiful and ugly. The beautiful Perchten often distributed gifts. So went it loudly and joyfully. If the wild perchta herself did not come among them, if this spirit mixed among them, the game was dangerous. One could recognize the presence of the wild perchta. And the Perchton raged, all wild and furious and sprang over the well stock. In this case, the Perchton ran swiftly away from each other in fear and tried to reach the nearest best house. For as soon as one was under a roof, the Wild One could not have them any longer. Otherwise, she would tear apart anyone who she could get possession of. Even today, one can see places where the Perchton, tore apart by the Wild Perchta, lie buried. So I find it fascinating that they are pointing out here that there are people that are buried that died because Perchta killed them. So it makes you wonder what happened in those cases. Did Perchta actually exist? Does she exist? Did she tear people apart? Did people lose their minds during some of these celebrations and do it to each other? Or are these all just a bunch of legends and stories? Other rituals would be a protective smoking of the house. What they would do is take some food stock, maybe some meat, and they would mix it with specific herbs and burn it around the winter solstice for protection. These were aimed to awaken the spirits of the new year, and it was believed that these spirits of the new year would start to melt away the snow, make the days longer, and bring more opportunities for food. One of the things that people would do also to honor Perchta would be to leave food out for her during the Christmas period, and this would guarantee that they would have prosperity in the new year. One of the most terrifying aspects of Perchta is her role as the belly slitter. She would punish people who betrayed cultural norms. Or if you were a bad child, Herchta would come and slit open your tummy. She would take out your entrails, your innards, and then she would stuff you full of rubbish. So she takes out your guts and puts in garbage. Who would want that? And as we all know, you can't live that way. Holda is sometimes referred to as the White Lady of Winter. And as we all know, our ladies in white can sometimes be a little scary. Now, she's known as the Gracious One. She brings in winter. While she is associated with the Wild Hunt as well, she's also associated with spinning. Perchta is associated with spinning as well very interesting. There's a lot of folklore that goes along with craft work like knitting or spinning. A lot of you are familiar with Sleeping Beauty and how the spindle is associated with that or Rumpelstiltskin who spins gold. With both of these women being associated with the spindle and spinning, shepherds would bring flax to them and in turn they would bless the flocks and both of these goddesses would be seen carrying golden spindles in their hands around twilight. And one of the things that a spindle symbolizes is fate or fortune, the spinning of your future. So if they are holding that, it could be that they are holding your fate, making them very important. And it's important to get the spinning done on time. And if you don't, this is another thing that you would be punished. And we all know the punishment, at least with Perchta, is that you get slit open. Holda, on the other hand, seems to mostly go after children. She's pretty ambivalent towards them. And she was used a lot as a boogie person to keep kids on the straight and narrow. She rewarded good kids at Christmas, but naughty kids were severely punished. And this usually entailed her carrying them off into the woods. Sometimes she would keep the children in wells and eventually turn them into fairy changelings. Which brings into Christmas the lore about changelings. And Hulda came up in one of the Brothers Grimm stories. It's the fairy tale called Mother Holda. It's a tale of a mother and her two daughters. The youngest one is unloved and overworked. She leaps into a well after a spinning spindle she had dropped into it. And there she finds herself in the other world of Holda. And Holda keeps her as a maidservant for several weeks. She was so impressed by the girl's meekness and how well she worked that she sent her back to her family with an apron full of gold. The greedy mother then sent the other lazy daughter down the well to get more gold. But Mother Holder reproved her idle nature and sent her home covered with tar. So isn't it interesting that we have this story from the Brothers Grimm talking about how you go down the well to get to where Holder is. And then we have stories that she would keep these children in the well and exchange them for changelings. Another term for Hulda is goddess of the witches and she's sometimes depicted as an ugly hag riding on her broom through the night sky. This is more likely something that she's been morphed into. What she was morphed from is a more gracious goddess who would take the souls of infant children who had died to a better place. Now for me I see her as an evil being because she brings snow with her and I hate snow. But for you if you love snow it could be a good thing. Now, as we said, Holda can tell the naughty children from the good and she rides through the sky on Yule Eve, leaving rewards for the good kids, bad stuff for the bad kids. You can honor Holda any time by giving of yourself in your housework and your cooking. So anything around the home. Now, one of the reasons why she was associated with witches is because people thought that her connection to the spirit world through the magic of spinning and weaving was witchcraft. So Catholic German folklore would call her a witch. She's considered a leader of the female nocturnal spirits and in common parlance they're referred to as Holden and this is taken from her name Holda. These women would leave their houses in spirit going out through closed doors in the silence of the night leaving their sleeping husbands behind and they would travel great distances through the sky and sometimes they would have battles in the clouds or they would travel to a great feast together and there are some who claim that these are not actually women they're just the likenesses of women but actually demons and that they're riding upon beasts. Our third goddess is Scotty and this comes from Norse mythology. She is a giantess and she is associated with hunting sometimes she's called the goddess of snowshoes she lives in the mountains usually not coming away from them because she loves the snow Her name means shadow or shade, so shadow people are very comfortable around her, and she is associated a lot with darkness. Now, one of the things that makes her a darker creature is because her father was murdered by the gods. She wanted revenge, and so to appease her, they told her that she could marry any god that she wanted, but that she was only allowed to see their feet. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not want to choose my future mate based on feet. But she went along and she observed all the feet and she saw these glorious feet and she thought that they belonged to Balder and that's who she wanted to marry. Well, she came to find out that it was actually Njord who was an older god. She was not happy. So the two get married, but they are polar opposites. She loves the mountains and the snow and the cold. He is from the seashore and he cannot stand the cold or the snow. So eventually they part ways. She goes on later to marry the god Ul. She's also associated with Loki. We know him as the trickster god. He came along as part of the deal with her when it came to choosing a god to marry. They were also supposed to make her laugh. So they said, Loki, make her laugh. So he ties this rope around a goat and around his testicles. And then he shoes the goat along, which of course pulls on his nether parts. He screams out and this caused Scotty to laugh at him. He comes over to her. He's bleeding from his endeavor. He collapses into her lap and somehow he fertilizes her. Now I don't know if they end up having a child from this fertilization but it's a big deal that somehow he's fertilized her this way. So they have this connection. Well later on Balder who is the god that she wanted to marry Loki kills him. Thor ties him up to a rock and he sends Scotty to go punish Loki. So she is a goddess of the Sith wolves and poisonous snakes. She takes poisonous snakes with her to use in the punishment of Loki. She puts the snakes over him, and all this venom comes down on him, and it burns him, and it just tortures him, and he screams out in pain, and that is his punishment. One of the more creepy aspects of the worship of Scotty is her priestesses, in order to prepare themselves for their rituals, they would bathe themselves in blood. And being that she is a giantess, In old Norse mythology, they were considered devourers, which meant that they were predominantly forces of darkness, cold, and death. Many people in Norse beliefs would look at her as more of a benevolent goddess. For them, the winter was not necessarily as negative of a time. And so a lot of the activities that were associated with winter were associated with her. And so they saw her a patroness of winter. But if you were somebody who feared the death and the darkness that comes with winter, her coming would cause fear for you i tell you Perchta, holda and scotty are some creepy ladies but this one takes the cake tell us about Grela.
1: grilla is sometimes referred to as a giantess which may be an attempt to soften her image her description in most tellings of the legend is pretty scary She's described as having hooves for feet and 13 tails.
0: Yikes. What woman has 13 tails? I don't know.
1: <laughs> she has the face of a woman, but she is very ugly. Well, that's pretty judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> she lives in the mountains, and at Christmas, she comes to town to get all the bad children. She was not originally associated with Christmas. Christmas. She first came onto the scene in ancient pagan times, but by the 17th century, she was part of the visiting tales told at Christmas. Her name is thought to mean threatening, and she certainly is that. She doesn't come to town bearing rocks for gifts and other such unpleasantries. She comes to gather the bad children, and when she gets them, she puts them in her sack and takes them back to her cave. And while other Christmas baddies like to whip and beat children, Grilla likes to eat them. After she drags them back to her cave, she boils them alive for her favorite stew. Adults aren't safe either, especially if you're a man and happen to marry this catch of the Icelandic mountains. She's already killed three husbands. Maybe you might like to be hubby number four. Apparently, she made some babies with these men. The 13 Yule lads are said
0: to be her sons. And these things are quite the characters, too, Kelly. So the Yule Lads are 13 men that take the place of Father Christmas or Santa Claus in Icelandic folklore. Children put their shoes on the windowsills on the 13 days leading up to Christmas. And based on their behavior, they either receive a gift or a punishment like rotten potatoes. Oh, you'd love to find that in your (laughs) shoe, wouldn't you? good grief might make them smell even worse than they already potentially did <laughs> at different times in history these yule lads have been anything from pranksters to full-on monsters that eat children there's the sheep coat clod, gully Gock who steals milk stubby who steals pans to eat the crust from i mean at least he's cleaning up yeah <laughs> kelly this could possibly be me spoon liquor who steals spoons of course <laughs> especially if they have chocolate frosting something like Colib. that on yeah <laughs> pot liquor who eats leftovers again another part of the cleanup crew bowl liquor who eats from your bowl if you set it down door slammer skier gobbler who eats skier and for people who don't know this is an icelandic kind of yogurt thing sausage swiper that could be you you love sausage i sure do window peeper Well, oh, what is that a peeping tom Doorway sniffer, ew. (laughs) Meat hook who steals meat with a hook, and candle stealer. Quite interesting little guys. Are they little or are they big? Well, they are lads. They do call them lads. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're small. I think they're more like the size of a dwarf. Gotcha. So if you think about dwarves versus elves, you're looking at that kind of a size. Don't think I want them hanging around the house unless they're going to clean up the dishes. Then they can. I mean, hey,
1: less work for us,
0: right? (laughs) Kelly, you want to tell us about Belsnickel?
1: Then there is Ruklas, or as he is more commonly known, Belsnickel. Ruklas means rough nicholas. And Belsnickel comes from Belzen, the German word for wallop. I guess that tells you
0: something, wallop. (laughs) I'm going to
1: wallop you. (laughs) He's a male character that is usually seen wearing shaggy clothing that is dark and most usually made with some type of skin or fur. He is a dour character and carries a switch that he uses to beat the bad kids. He occasionally hands out candy to the good kids. Some tellings of the legend claim that the switch is only used to make a scary noise to warn children that they better shape up before Christmas arrives. But we know better. Belsnickel crossed the pond with the Pennsylvania Dutch and still survives in their customs. This next one
0: is Connect Roprecht. Connect Roprecht is the most widely known helper of Santa in Germany. He appears in clothing most suitable to be a farmhand. He carries a staff and a bag of ashes and walks with a limp. The bag of ashes is used to beat children who tell the monster that they cannot pray. If they can pray, they may receive a piece of fruit. Fairies accompany him at times, as well as men with blackened faces, but even scarier is the knowledge that Ruprecht is a name for the devil in German. Oh my. Yeah. And I'm sure I'm going to butcher this,
1: but next we have Puer Fuetar. That's pretty good. Pretty close, <laughs> Sir Kelly. We don't
0: speak French. I think you got it pretty close.
1: We listened to the pronunciation several times. Yes. <laughs> Old
0: Saint Nick has
1: some pretty creepy and sadistic enforcers working for him. One of these enforcers is Père Fouettard, who is the French
0: version of the
1: Whipping Father.
0: The original story of the Whipping Father is about a man named Hans Trapp. He was a creepy old butcher. The children in town steered clear of him, and they told each other tales of him torturing children. Finally, one day, it would seem that he lost his control and killed several children. He cut their bodies into pieces and incorporated the flesh into meat that he threw into a barrel of brine. He later sold the meat as ham. St. Nicholas was very angry and he brought the children back to life when he figured out what had happened. This freaked Hans' trap out and he repented of his crime. St. Nick wrapped him in chains and sentenced him to wander the earth as a whipping father. That meant his job was to whip children into being good. We're not exactly sure how this is punishment for a man who enjoyed torturing children, though. Sounds like that would be right up his alley. I know. There was more entailed here than just whipping children.
1: This character would cut out the tongues of children who lied to him as well. So Santa gave out treats and presents to the good kids, and Hans trap would give out the beatings to bad kids. This character is said to be grey in appearance because of his travels down the chimney. We're not sure how Saint Nick stays clean, but that's besides the point. And I, I do have to say All he does he lays his finger aside his nose, and up and down the chimney he goes. That rhymed Kelly. I'm a poet and I didn't know it, but my feet show it because they're long pillows.
0: Even though he's a little, uh, you know, jolly bowl of jelly, he he doesn't skid up the side of the inside of the chimney, I guess, huh? Get a little Don't
1: dirty. fat shame Santa or you're going to be getting cold. Oh, dang it. What is wrong with you? I'm going to send the whipping man after you. I know. I'm going to get it now. Père Fouetard has a sinister face with a long beard and dresses in dark robes that have a hood to cover his unruly hair. He carries a whip, switches, or a large stick. He tends to show up on December 6th, so his legend is similar to that of Krampus. The association of Père Fouetard with Saint Nicholas dates back to the 4th century. Another legend associated with this character dates back to 1552 and the Siege of Metz. During that siege, the people burned an effigy of King Charles Quint and dragged it through the streets. Tanners used leather to create a grotesque creature that they claimed punished children during the siege as well. When things calmed down, somehow the Tanner's creature and the burned effigy came together and became known as Le Père Fouter. Saint Nicholas is said to have passed away at the same time, and this monster became associated with him as a bad counterpart.
0: Next, we have Did Moraz. And while he shares a lot of similar traits with that jolly old elf Santa Claus, and let's face it, elves might not all be good either, and any guy who's watching you while you sleep and judging you about being good or bad might have a few weird things about him. Did Moraz has some demonic origins to him, which makes him a little bit darker of a figure than Santa Claus or good old Saint Nick. One thing that softens Didmaraz is the fact that he travels with a companion. And she's known as Snee who is his granddaughter. And she's a rather attractive young lady. Now, the good side of them is that they both bring gifts to the children. But they also judge who's been naughty or nice. And rather than just putting coal in a stocking, they have similar punishments like the other Christmas baddies out there. And you don't have to just be a bad child or bad person to get punished by Didmoraz. You could just be mean or lazy and he's going to lay into you as well. Let's talk about the origins of Moroz. He predates Christianity and was once known as the ancient Morazko, who in Russian folklore was known as a powerful hero and smith who chains water with his iron frost. He soon became the symbol of the Russian winter, and people would greet him coming with oatmeal kissel or boiled rice with raisins and honey. And as his legend grew, before long, he wasn't just associated with winter, but also with the new year coming and presents. And just like jolly old St. Nick, did Moroz and his granddaughter Snevarachka, Travel on a sleigh, but it's not drawn by reindeer. It's drawn by three horses and they all are abreast. So there's the three of them just right in front of them pulling the sleigh along. And usually they have an evergreen tree inside the sleigh with them. So they're not just bringing presents for the tree. They're actually bringing the tree with them. Now, don't get me wrong, when it comes to Russia, their patron saint was St. Nicholas, and he was associated with the feast day of December 6th and was thought to bring presents too. So there are people who wonder if St. Nicholas doesn't come down from the ancient Morozko folklore that was out there. Whether St. Nicholas comes down from that or is a separate individual, there definitely are different attributes between these two personalities. Saint Nicholas, of course, does have a lot of magic about him. I mean, if he can put a finger to his nose and go right up the chimney, that's pretty magical. The fact that he can deliver gifts all across the world in one night is pretty magical. Flying reindeer, pretty magical. But Did Miraz is even more magical. And this sometimes isn't a good thing when it comes to the fact that he could be thought of as being both kind and evil. You don't want to have magical power in the hands of someone who can be evil. A lot of the reactions you get from him is based on who you are. If you are a hardworking person and good-hearted, he'll be kind to you. If you're mean and lazy, he will be very severe. Didmaraz is described as wearing mittens and a wide white belt. He wears high boots with silver ornamentation. He has a shirt and trousers that are made of flax and decorated with white geometrical ornamental patterns. On top of his shirt, he wears a fur coat, which is ankle long and it's embroidered with crosses and silvery stars. I couldn't find anything on the coloring, but generally it is thought that it was red in color. Definitely the hat he wore would be red and it was embroidered with pearls. He carries a pike staff with him, which is made of silver or crystal, and it has this like twisty grip to it. It doesn't seem to have any magic to it, but he is never seen without it. And he's often described as having a red nose. And lots of children will tease about Didmaraz saying, Didmaraz, the red nose. And just like sometimes parents will disguise themselves as Santa when they're laying gifts underneath the tree, the parents in Slavic countries would do the same thing with Did Maraz. They would put on clothes that would look kind of like what Didmaraz would wear. They'd put on a little cotton wool beard and some slippers that might look like something Didmaraz would be wearing. It said that Didmaraz lived in the picturesque town of Veliki Usvag in the Vologodsky region of northern Russia. This is about 500 miles northeast of Moscow. You'd have to hike through a very dense forest. And then when you find these three rivers that all come together, there'll be a log cabin there and that is where Didmaraz lives. Children will send letters just like they do to Santa Claus at the North Pole. And Didmaraz will sit around during the summer reading those letters from children, telling him all about how good they've been and what kinds of presents they would like to find under the tree, which actually would be put up at New Year's on January 1st. So rather than the gifts coming on Christmas Eve and children waking up to them on Christmas Day with Moroz, it would be New Year's Eve when the presents would be left and they would see the presents on New Year's Day. When the Bolshevik Revolution came through Russia, Didmaraz was out. He was banished into exile. This happened in 1917. The communists, you know, weren't into religion. They weren't into spirituality. And this character was a spiritual being and some kind of a god to children. They didn't want them to look at anybody as being god rather than themselves. You know, the Soviets, they were the leaders. They wanted the people to worship them. This only lasted for about 20 years and Didmaraz returned to the country and New Year's celebrations made him public once again. To this day now, Didmaraz and his granddaughter Sneferochka do appear on New Year's Eve, putting presents under the trees for the kids. And one of the things a lot of people like to do when they go to Russia is they sell them the little statuettes of them and they will bring those home as a remembrance of their trip. And even in Russia, they will put little statues of Didmaraz and his granddaughter underneath the tree, these little replicas. Didmaraz is believed to be about 2,000 years old, and his birthday is on November 8th. And while a lot of the things I've told you about him seem awfully positive, just bringing presents to the kids on New Year's Eve, as I said, there's a lot of darkness to his past. Some of it has been glossed over into our present time. They don't talk about it as much, but there were many stories told about him calling him Father Frost and King Frost and saying that he was a cruel wizard of winter who would come in and kidnap children and only return them to their parents who would give him gifts. So basically kidnapping them for a bribe or money or something of that nature. Here is one of the stories that has passed down through the generations about King Frost. there was once this angry stepmother. She obviously favored her own daughter over her stepdaughter. Her stepdaughter was very good-natured, unselfish. I'm picturing a Snow White, a Cinderella, while her own daughter was very spoiled, and she always gave in to every whim of her own daughter. One day, the stepmother told her husband to get rid of her young stepdaughter. She said, send her away, old man. Send her away anywhere so that my eyes shan't be plagued any longer by the sight of her or my ears tormented by the sound of her voice. Send her out into the fields and let the cutting frost do for her. The old man begged his wife to reconsider, but finding her unmovable, he agreed and took his daughter out to the sled. Not even providing her with a warm blanket, he left the girl with a kiss before quickly returning to his home, daring not to look back and see his beloved daughter suffering out there in the freezing cold can you imagine? The poor girl sat down beside a fir tree and began to weep quietly. Soon she heard a crackling noise and looked up to see King Frost standing beside her. Well maiden, do you know who I am? I am King Frost, king of the red noses. All hail to you great king, answered the girl in a gentle trembling voice. Have you come to take me? Are you warm maiden? He asked her. Quite warm, King Frost, she answered, though she shivered as she spoke. King Frost repeated his question as he came ever closer to the young girl. Are you warm, maiden? The cold air and the crackling increased, yet the girl continued to reply, still warm, O king. King Frost took pity on the young girl for her gentle ways and respectful words, so he wrapped her in furs, covered her in blankets, and showered her in gifts of jewels and a fine sleigh led by six white horses. The next morning, the angry stepmother told her husband that he should go to recover the dead body of his daughter. She was shocked when the old man returned with a large chest filled with riches and his daughter, who was more beautiful than before and dressed in fine furs and a radiant silver and gold dress. Old man yoked the horses at once into the sled and take my daughter to the same field and leave her on the same spot exactly, she ordered. Can you imagine this woman? She's like, well, she got all that good stuff. My daughter should have it too. Why don't you take her out to freeze? The woman's daughter dropped herself by the fir tree and pouted. It was not long until the crackling sound began and King Frost appeared at the girl's side. Are you warm, maiden, he asked. What a blind old fool you must be to ask such a question, she answered angrily. Can't you see that my hands and feet are nearly frozen? Repulsed by the young woman's words, King Frost got very angry and cracking his fingers, then gnashing his teeth, he froze her to death. The stepmother grew impatient to see her daughter with the same riches as her despised stepdaughter, so she sent her husband to fetch the girl. One could only imagine her surprise and despair when he returned to the house with the frozen body of her beloved daughter. Now, I don't know, is King Frost a bad guy because he did that? Perhaps. Or did the girl get what she deserved? Again, I say, perhaps. There are other descriptions of Didmaraz that are very, very different there's some stories that claim he's a good-natured giant, and then there's others who say that he's a little old creature with a long gray beard who runs around in fields and knocks around on things, causing frost to appear on stuff. It's almost like Midas touching things and turning them to gold. This Moroz touches things and turns it to frost. His malice could cause tree trunks to crack, and his blows would make hut logs decay, so you wouldn't want him running around your forest. Nikolai Nekrasov's poem, Miraz Rednose, tells the story of Muraz, in which he kills a young peasant widow and causes her small children to be orphaned. And he does it just because he wants a good laugh and it gives him a good laugh. So it was for his own entertainment. He has been associated with Pazvid, who is the god of wind and good and bad weather, and Zimnik, who is the god of winter, and also the terrifying Karachan, who is an underworld god ruling over frost. So you mix all of them together and you get Didmaraz. For people like me who don't like the cold, I don't think Didmaraz is really up my alley. So if you're ever in Russia around Christmas and New Year's, you may find celebrations in which children and parents are going over these verses and riddles and performing things and singing and dancing and doing this all around a fir tree, all in honor of Didmaraz. And they call these yokas, which are New Year's festive matinees. And there are a lot of men who like to go around dressed as Didmaraz. So you might find a whole group of white-bearded men wearing red carrying these enormous sacks hopefully they have presents in those sacks and not children
1: next we have yola katrin the icelandic yule cat is named yola katrin This is not a cuddly cat. This isn't a cat who might reach out and give you a little scratch if you get too close. This cat might actually eat you. During the Christmas season, children who finish all their chores would receive new clothes for Christmas. If one is lazy, well, you could forget those new clothes because you were lazy. Sometimes the possibility of receiving new clothes is not enough. And the legend of Yola Katarin was born. They would tell the children that the cat could tell who the lazy children were because they had not received clothes on Christmas. And so, the cat would eat the lazy children. Scared children do their chores and even do things for the needy. It's said that Icelanders work more overtime than most Europeans, and perhaps this is why. Because a cat doesn't just come for children, he comes for adults too.
0: Here is the Christmas cat poem. You've heard of the Christmas cat. That cat was monstrously huge. People knew not where he came or where he went. He opened his eyes wide. They both were glowing. It was not for the cowards to look into them. Whiskers sharp as needles, the tall curve of its bent back, and claws in the hairy paws was awful to look upon. He waved a strong tail. He leaped and he scratched and he hissed. and was either up in the valley or out in the headland. He roamed, famished and savage, in the ice-cold Christmas snow, and woke fear in everyone's hearts in every town. If there was a pitiful meow outside, the bad luck was immediately certain. Everyone knew that he hunted humans and did not want mice. He aimed for the poor people who received no new garment for Christmas and toiled and lived in miserable conditions. From them he got his feeding for his Christmas dinner and ate them usually if he could. That's why the women fought with comb and loom and spinning wheel and knitted colorful patches or little socks. For the cat could not arrive and eat the little children. They would receive their items with the grown-ups. And when the candles were lit for Christmas Eve, and the cat peeped in, the children stood proud and ready with their parcels. Some had received mittens and some had received shoes, or something that they were in need of, but that was all it took, for the cat could not eat anyone, who some garment received. She hissed then rather awfully and ran away. Whether she still exists I do not know, but her travel would become miserable if everyone was given some item of clothing. You may have it now in your mind to help when it's needed, Maybe there still are children that receive nothing at all. Maybe the search of those who live in dark homes gives you a good day and a Merry Christmas. So make sure you're giving new clothes to everybody. Next we have Mary Lloyd. On New Year's Eve,
1: revelers celebrate the end of one year and the beginning of another. This evening is also the night of Mary Lloyd in Welsh tradition. The traditions that surround the celebration of Mary Lloyd are straight out of Halloween. There's going door-to-door for treats while wearing costumes, and there are skeletons. One skeleton in particular is that of Mary herself. But this is not a human skeleton. This is a skeleton of a mare. Imagine opening your door and finding a skeletal horse holding a bag and singing. Yes, singing. The song she sings is in Welsh, and she is usually surrounded by other revelers joining in her chorus. The song is basically asking the person who answers the door to let her inside. But we all know what that means when it comes to black-eyed kids. Could the same be true for Mary? We're not sure if in the end you die, but it sounds like fun getting to the place where Mary and her party are invited to enter. A battle of wits known as Puentco is entered into after Mary sings her song. This is a battle full of insults, riddles, and challenges. These are exchanged back and forth in rhyme. Never mind that Mary and her group are a bunch of fiends risen from the dead. If she wins, they get to come in. The ancient practice also incorporates the Festival of Lights, representing rebirth and hope at the new year. So it's not all bad. In the areas that celebrate Mary Lloyd, they make a puppet from the skull of a horse, either the real thing or something fabricated, using a stick and a white cloth to conceal the puppeteer taking the figure around. She is usually decorated with colorful ribbons and winter vegetation like pine branches and holly.
0: I guess if I answered my door and there was the skull of a horse right there, I I might be a little bit taken aback too. (laughs) And then if they all start singing, then I'm really going to be taken aback, unless they sing really good. Well, you never know. This is a twist on Christmas caroling that I really could get into. Sounds like a blast to me, honestly. (laughs) I really can't carry a tune, so I'd carry
1: Mary Loude. You can carry a tune just fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We have come through the time of the year where there is a thinning of the veil. Even as we move further away from that, we come into a season of darkness. It's as if Halloween has opened the door to the coming darkness. We know this will end with light and life coming. But as we make our way through the holiday season, we implore you to to be be good for goodness sake. sake. Kelly, we're wishing everybody season screamings, happy holidays, and all that good stuff.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Thanks so much for joining us for this creepy Christmas extravaganza. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Season screamings to all of you spookies.
1: Mort loves you. Now where did my
0: body Krampus, go?